Well, thank you uh, for your singing this morning. Now, you may be wondering, why in the world did we just sing O Canada at church? What just happened? Did I, did I fall asleep and uh, is this church turning into some kind of jingoistic God and country kind of place and I didn't notice or pay attention to it at all? Did I miss something? But before I uh, answer that question for you, I want you to ponder for a minute, and I want you to just toss out some answers or suggestions to this question. What do you think is the actual purpose behind a national anthem? What is it, what's it about? Just toss out some thoughts. Unity. Unity? Okay. What else? Patriotism. Patriotism. It, we have to start a hockey game somehow. It's true. It's true. What else? Prayer, yeah, certainly that the uh, second verse of O Canada, which we almost never sing, uh, for probably understandable reasons, is actually phrased as a prayer directed uh, specifically towards God, which is interesting. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. It's, it's interesting to think about, because we just kind of sing national anthems, and we don't often think about what we're actually maybe doing. In some ways, I think they do express vision or solidarity or unity. And maybe at its best, a national anthem is, is a snapshot of some of those things, uh, values, aspirations, and ideals that a people group hold. Uh, at worst, I've traveled to some countries like uh, Cuba or like Russia, where their anthems are, and it's not as a dig in their anthems, it, it's just straight up propaganda. Uh, is embedded in, in their anthem. And there's a few other kind of tools. When we talk about, somebody uses the word patriotism, we, there's a few other tools that nations use to drum up kind of patriotism. But uh, perhaps one that is also well known to us in addition to an anthem is a pledge of allegiance. So the pledge of allegiance, if I asked you to say the pledge of allegiance to the American flag, how many of you do you think you could do it with reasonable confidence? All right, Danny, I know you can. Betty Stevenson, I know you can. Keith, I know you can. All right. Okay, for a country that you no longer live in but grew up in, we, will, we appreciate it, and I'm sure you know, they do too. But now, same, same four of you, just to pick on you for a minute, if I asked you to say the Pledge of Allegiance to the Canadian flag, could you do it? It's a trick question because we don't actually have an official one. So I don't mean to put you on the spot, but Sean is correct. It is, do we have one question? We have one, but it's never kind of gone on the record as being officially adopted. Now, that didn't stop. I don't know what your experience was growing up, but in the school that I grew up in, every day we pledged allegiance to the Canadian flag. Anybody else do that growing up? Okay, a few, a few people may have. Um, so the... Uh, the school, the pledge that we did in our school, which I can still remember, is uh, to my flag and to the country it represents, I pledge respect and loyalty, wave with pride from sea to sea, and within your folds keep us ever united. Be a symbol of love, freedom, and justice. God keep our flag. God protect our Canada. As, as pledges go, it's a great one. I mean, it's better than the Pledge of Allegiance to the state of Texas's flag, which they make some kids in some schools recite in Texas. Uh, but here's where it gets a bit weird. Right after that in school, we would also recite another Pledge of Allegiance, and this Pledge of Allegiance was to the Christian flag. 
So um, you may have seen the Christian flag, and you may think, what in the world? Why do we even need a Christian flag? What is the, the Christian flag? Anyways, well, it's not like Christianity has a country. But apparently, regardless, in our school, we stood... Pledge allegiance to the Canadian flag, and then we stood and we pledged allegiance to the Christian flag. And the Pledge of Allegiance, uh, which I don't remember as well, so I'll have to read it, is, I pledge allegiance to the Christian flag and to the Savior for whose kingdom it stands, one Savior, crucified, risen, and coming again with life and liberty for all who believe. Now here's where it gets even weirder and frankly just a little bit troubling. If you grew up south of the 49th parallel, That pledge of allegiance to the Christian flag might sound a little bit familiar. Why? Well, because if for the four of you that could say the Pledge of Allegiance to the U.S. flag by heart, if I put up side by each the pledge to the American flag and to the Christian flag, and this is the last Pledge of Allegiance we'll go through this morning, I promise you, what do you notice about them? They're super similar, in fact. Um, basically, they mirror or parrot each other. And I think this is illustrative for me of the fact that we live in a day and time that just gets weird on some of these things. Religion and um, state and religion gets co-opted by politics and politics by religion all of the time in weird and confusing kinds of ways. In the U.S., um, the, the uh, nation's flag is hung in churches, and the phrase, in God we trust, is printed on the money, and I'm not sure if either of those are actually genuinely reflective in some ways of the intentions of either group. Some people, uh, I know some associates south of the border, they refuse to pay taxes because they think that some of the money is going things to specifically fund things that they don't agree with. Another friend uh, that we have in the States opposes everything pretty much, strictly on the basis that he thinks that something bad might happen if he says yes to some political proposition in any way or something. And sometimes I think as Canadians, we can look at that stuff and we can get pretty smug and say to ourselves, well, we're much more sophisticated than that up here, aren't we? To which I might reply, really? Have you watched the news lately? There's some pretty crazy stuff that can happen in this category. And regardless of your political views, which we're not here to talk about, the more compelling question is, does the Bible give us any guidance around these issues of how a person of faith relates to the country in which they live? And the answer is yes, the Bible does give some very clear guidance. One of the early Christian leaders in the Christian movement uh, named Paul in the book of Romans in chapter 13 gives lots of great guidance. Lays out the roles of government, lays out the responsibilities that we have as individuals uh, to government that are ordained by God, and that reminds us as citizens of things. Um, But this morning, we're going to ask the question, did Jesus say anything about our relationship as individuals to the countries in which we live and our places in it? So last week, as Pastor Keith mentioned, we started in a series that'll take us uh, beyond Easter called The Red Letters. And in this series, we're going to look at things that Jesus said and explore the question, what if he actually meant them? What What if the things that Jesus said hold maybe a little bit more weight than sometimes we give them credit for? And we're calling this series The Red Letters 
because of the notion that in many versions of the Bible, if you look in them, the things that Jesus said are actually outlined in red. And so I'd invite you uh, to listen to last week's audio online if you want to catch up on that concept, where it came from, and all those things. But the question we want to drive at today is the question, did Jesus say anything about how we as people of faith should relate to government? Jesus said a lot of things. Did he say anything specifically on this topic? Well, Jesus said a lot. One of the, in fact, primary themes of his teaching is the kingdom of God. And so Jesus talked actually a lot about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Just like we were singing some of those songs earlier taken from the words of the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, God's kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so Jesus said a lot about these types of things, about politics, about nations, about nationalism. And um, I'm influenced heavily in my thinking on this by a lot of early Anabaptist writers and then also by uh, Tony Campolo and Shane Claiborne have written a recent book called The Red Letter Revolution. And one of the things that I think both of those writers from the 14th and 15th centuries and then uh, some contemporary writers are highlighting for us is that in many ways, um, the primary theme of Jesus' teaching was the kingdom of God. He announced it. He declared it. He inaugurated it. And the word kingdom that Jesus uses when he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand is the same word as the word empire that was used in the ancient world. Because remember, when Jesus walked the earth 2,000 years ago, he was living among the most extensive political construct and empire that had ever existed in history to date, the Roman Empire. Empire. And into the midst of this historical sitting, setting, Jesus stands up and says, The existence of another empire or kingdom is here, which could understandably cause some trouble and some questions that would arise in people's mind. In John chapter 18, Jesus clarifies it and says, amongst other things about his kingdom, oh, listen, you need to understand this. My kingdom is not of this earth. This is not an earthly kingdom that we're talking about here because people were gravitating towards it. You can remember if you're reading in the, in the New Testament, people wanted to make Jesus king. They wanted to give him all of this authority from an earthly perspective. But when you stand up in the midst of an empire and say a counter-empire is emerging or coming, this is the kind of stuff that gets you killed. And all through his life and ministry, Jesus continuously is clarifying and, in fact, subverting notions of power and authority. He turns it on his head in many ways. Why? Because Jesus understands something powerful about empires. And that is this, that ultimately, the thing that an empire requires of you is allegiance. The ultimate thing that you give to an empire is allegiance. You pledge, as in the pledges that I recited earlier, respect and loyalty and fidelity. You promise When you sing an anthem, when you pledge allegiance, you promise to live out the values 
that are contained or that are espoused by the kingdom that you belong to. And Jesus fully anticipates that there will be times and places where the values of the kingdom of heaven might come into sharp conflict with the values of the place that issues your passport or birth certificate. Both empires might demand something of you. And in in certain situations, those demands might come into conflict with each other. And so the question today is, what do you do when discipleship, your ethic and your commitment to the kingdom of God and patriotism or nationalism, allegiance to the country in which you reside, collide? How do you prioritize or sort through conflicting demands? Well, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22 or on your phone or uversion.com. This is one place of many that Jesus engages this conversation of allegiance. And he does it in a way that might be surprising for us to wrestle with. So I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 15. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Then the Pharisees met together to plot how to trap Jesus into saying something for which he could be arrested. They sent some of their disciples, along with the supporters of Herod, to meet him. Teacher, they said, we know how honest you are. You teach the way of God truthfully. You are impartial. You don't play favorites. Now tell us, what do you think about this? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus knew their evil motives. (laughs) You hypocrites, he said. Why are you trying to trap me? Here, let me show you a coin that's used to pay the tax. When they handed him a Roman coin, he asked, whose picture and whose title are stamped on it? Well, Caesar's, they replied. Well, then, he said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. And his reply amazed them, and they went away. Now, you might remember from our conversation last week about mustard seed faith that when Jesus is asked a question in the New Testament, he almost never answers it directly, and he almost never answers it in the way that you think he's going to answer it. And this is no exception. Here Jesus is asked a straight-up, yes-no, black-white question. Jesus, is, it's on paying taxes. Should we pay taxes to the Roman Empire or not? And the... Pharisees think that they have Jesus completely in a bind on this one. And the reason is the uh, Roman Empire of Jesus' day farmed out the collection of taxes to independent subcontractors, tax collectors. They reference them in the New Testament. And uh, they have the full support of the Roman military to carry out their work. But if you can remember the story of the tax collectors in the New Testament, people like Zacchaeus and others, the problem was there was sort of the minimum that they had to collect, but there was no ceiling on what they could collect. 
And so obviously, if you could get a gig as a tax collector with the full military might of the Roman army behind you, and you just had to send this minimum to Rome, whatever you collected above and beyond that, that was what you made a living out of. And so since there was no ceiling, and since you could pretty much tax anybody as much as you wanted to tax them, then you did so. And so, I mean, you think you have problems dealing with the CRA or the IRS, I mean, these people were despised and hated because literally they had carte blanche to do whatever they wanted in terms of a taxation policy. All they had to do was send the minimum amount off to Rome and that was all. And then they could tax you as much as they wanted to. And so people despised income tax collectors. Because basically... There was no rules around this except for the minimum. It was whatever the greedy tax collector wanted to collect from you that particular time. Because if you didn't pay it, you were going to suffer the consequences. So the Pharisees know this and they think, aha, we're going to get Jesus in a corner here. We're going to ask him a question uh, and we're going to come with, we're going to partner with the people that we normally hate, the supporters of Herod, the local ruler who's set in place by Rome. And we're going we're to conduct a little sting operation against Jesus here because if Jesus says, yes, you should pay taxes to Caesar, bam, his public popularity plummets instantaneously. I mean, people are going to be upset with him. They're going to say, how could, you, how could you sanction that kind of usury? Like, that's not, uh, in the Old Testament, God was clearly against that and had all kinds of rules. I'm not going to put up with this anymore. What kind of teaching is this? But if Jesus says no, they're already there with the Herod crew and presumably some Roman soldiers, and they could instantaneously throw him in jail for suggesting that not paying taxes because that would be treason. And so they think that they've got Jesus totally boxed in on his answer to this. In the book I referenced earlier, author and activist Shane Claiborne suggests about this passage that, as he does in many other places, Jesus basically doesn't address the question. He subverts the question, and he challenges the basic assumptions upon which the question is built. He doesn't dodge the question, he transcends it. And he forces in his response the listeners and then us as listeners, taxpayers and tax collectors, to ponder the question, what is Caesar's? To what exactly does Caesar actually have a right? Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar's. Well, what belongs to Caesar's? Jesus doesn't actually answer that, does he? But he does say, well, what has Caesar's image on it? And then conversely, what he is asking them to think about is, what has God's image on it? What is Caesar's and what is God's? And if we think enough about this question, what Jesus is trying to, I think, push us towards is to consider the fact that once you've given to God that which is God's, there actually isn't really a lot left over for Caesar. We're used to our coins. Now, aside from the lowly penny being pushed aside and helping to raise money for wheelchairs in Guatemala, we're used to our coins being stamped with 
the image of the sovereign or the monarch. So for us, it's not a really big deal. This was true in the ancient Roman world as well, except the coins were stamped not only with the image of the Caesar of the day, but they were also sometimes stamped with the image Caesar, son of God. Now, you can see how deeply problematic this would be for Jewish people in Jesus' day to the point that they would not take those coins with them into the temple and use those as their tithe or as their offerings because that was considered idolatry, to take this Caesar coin into a holy place and do that. So they actually had to change their money and do uh, transactions, which is why Jesus got so upset because they were being charged so much money in the exchange rates, but that's another story. But Jesus has a problem with this idea that this monetary unit is stamped with Caesar, son of God. Indelibly on the currency of his day, you have a competing claim. And it seems to be that Jesus, in his answer to this question, is saying something like, oh, Caesar can have his silly little medals. After all, he can keep making more of them Uh, if he wants. After all, they aren't even really worth a dime. Coins, they're just coins. They have no life in them. But human life, now that's something if we want to talk about being stamped with an image, human life is stamped with the image of God. And Caesar, no matter what he thinks, he doesn't own that. So when it comes to giving Caesar, what is Caesar's, this verse is often used to justify people paying their taxes, which is fine. But Jesus is talking about so much more than paying your taxes. As good citizens, in Romans 13, it's laid out, that's fine, call to pay our taxes, honor those in authority, obey the rule of law. Those are, that all falls under the category of giving to Caesar what is Caesar. But we are also called as citizens of heaven, to recognize where and when nationalism can become idolatry. Again, I hate to pick on our friends and neighbors to the south, but in 2003, in his State of the Union address, President George W. Bush crystallized the danger of this for me when he said this, there is power power, wonder-working power in the goodness and idealism and faith of the American people. For those who know the words to that old hymn, there is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb, referencing the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross on our behalf replacing that with an image of nationalism or American exceptionalism or North American exceptionalism is not only horrible theology, it's just downright dangerous. Baptizing everything that any country does in God talk or a notion of divine authority has been used throughout history to perpetuate all manner of historical evils. And it needs to be challenged where it appears. Now, patriotism, or being 
a, a person who has a love for and a depth of appreciation for your country is not idolatry. Having a love for your nation, obviously, is not idolatry, but it can become idolatry when it moves into that place and usurps all other authority in our lives. Because the Bible clearly teaches that we live in a world of derived or derivative authority, not ultimate authority. That authority in our world is not about the nation who has the highest GDP, biggest military, most expansive geographical holdings. Those are still operating under a framework of authority. In the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel, God actively challenges and in fact deposes a king who sets himself up as the ultimate ruler and authority. His name was Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar was so enchanted with nationalism and the empire that he had built that God said to him, I'm actually going to take your mind from you for a season of years. You will live out in the fields like a wild animal until you acknowledge that I am the Lord of heaven and earth. And in Daniel 4.32, he says this, the most high rules over the kingdoms or the nations of this world and he gives them to anyone that he chooses. Authority is not taken by a 50% plus one majority. Authority is granted by God, and ultimately, all authority is ultimately derived from God's authority. This is, again, where we come to the question of what belongs to Caesar and what belongs to God. And this is where when we say, well, all authority is God's authority, and then if a nation has that authority that has been given to them by God, again, don't hear me saying that everything they do with that authority is sanctioned by God in any way because Jesus is subverting and challenging that question when he reminds them, yet there is giving to Caesar what is Caesar's, but also there is giving to God that which belongs to God. That's why it can get weird and inappropriate in my thinking to have this sort of uh, pledge of allegiance to the Christian flag. Uh, We run the risk of communicating in some circumstances that uh, there are equal claims on our lives when you would put the flag of a nation and then a Christian flag at the front of a church as an example. Because both of those claims do not exert the same influence in and claims on my life. Where the ideals or the aspirations or the values or the actions of the place that issues my passport or birth certificate come into conflict directly or indirectly with the vision and the values of the kingdom of God, I pledge allegiance to Jesus every single time. The citizenship of believers is in heaven. And God's kingdom demands from us absolute allegiance, loyalty, and fidelity. And friends, we 
have the wonderful and incredible privilege of finding ourselves in an era of history and in a place geographically where the stark conflicts between those two things do not exist as they do for many, many other people in the world. This has not been the case for many people all through history. And indeed, many of our brothers and sisters in the global church today do not have this luxury. Many people live in places where bad laws need to actively be resisted and challenged by good people, and they then suffer the consequences of those actions and standing for justice or for truth. I thank the Lord that you and I live in a place where we have a liberty politically and civilly to be able to critique and think and critically assess where patriotism stops and where discipleship begins. Because that hasn't been a luxury for many people. And we can make alternative choices. Now that might actively call us to living with the consequences of those choices. So for example, if you disobey a law, then you should be prepared to be thrown in jail if that is the punishment for that law, whether the law is good or whether the law is bad. Living under the rule of law and giving to Caesar that which is Caesar calls us to that position. But it's better uh, this than an unflinching and unquestioning allegiance to a state who is ultimately not in charge of my life and my destiny. And the Bible reminds us of this when it takes us to the book of Revelation and paints for us an ultimate picture of how human history will ultimately wrap up. And it's here that we learn that the prayer that we pray, your kingdom come, God, your will be done, is ultimately answered. Ultimately, God's will will be done. And ultimately, God's kingdom will come. And in Revelation 11, verse 15, it reminds us, the kingdoms or the nations or the empires of this world are subsumed and done away with, and they have been transitioned in the kingdom of our Lord and Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. One day, the ultimate question that you and I will be asked is not our citizenship, but our identity. Not our citizenship, but our identity. For those who are in Christ, the language of the New Testament, by which it means those who have given their lives over to the rule and to the reign and who have submitted to the authority and the ethics of God and his son Jesus, you've been given a new identity. It doesn't come with a change in passport or ID card, but it does come with a change at the fundamental orientation of your life. It comes with a change of where you get your priorities and marching orders from, not just in massive circumstances where somehow civil disobedience would be called out, but it comes with a set of marching orders for day-to-day life that might bring us into conflict with the spirit of our age 
and the way in which our nation lives it out. The gospel gives us new identities that trumps our national identities. The gospel gives us new identities that trump ethnic identities. The gospel gives us new identities that transcend and and call together those that have formerly been in conflict, Jews, Gentiles, Canadians, Americans, whatever you want to put in there. This would call us to minimize any ethnic or denominational or national differences and focus on what would unite us in our identity in Christ. And this is going to affect, again, not just the big picture items, but the way in which we live day to day in our lives, how we spend our time. My national identity might suggest that I should worship at the shrine of the NHL. What if helping my neighbor conflicts with watching the Canucks crush the LA Kings? My national ethos might lead me and us to places of unthinking consumerism and spending my money on whatever I want because after all, it's my money, but my identity as a follower of Jesus would cause me to question that as a fundamental presupposition and lead me down paths of radical giving and generosity and sacrifice. My identity as a follower of Jesus Christ will call out things in my life that may conflict with things that the rest of the people in my culture do. National pastime might be escapism and a sense of entitlement to flying somewhere warm over spring break and using my holiday time however I want. But your new identity might call you to spend a week serving in Guatemala and distributing wheelchairs or serving here in Langley with our summer camps the first week in July or going with Spencer and Allie to Quebec in August and supporting one of our fellow MB churches there. Even choosing to get out of bed on a nice day like today and come and sit in a gathering like this is in many ways choosing something antithetical to our cultural value here in the West Coast. There are many other ways that we could think of and identify, little ways and big ways, where our cultural and our national values might come into conflict with our values as people of the kingdom. And so today, I want us to begin to think and engage in a discussion critically about um, how those values might both live together and where those values might actually conflict with each other. And challenge and remind us that if you would say that you are a person who has given yourself to God and have switched an identity then as a follower of Jesus, you and I are accountable ultimately to give to him what is ultimately his. And once we do that, usually there isn't actually a whole lot left over for Caesar. So let's talk a little bit about this. Uh, We haven't done this for a while, but uh, every now and then in our teaching, the uh, response time, uh, Dustin was like, what song should I come up and sing after you do a message like that? I'm like, I don't know. There's probably not a great song of response that talks about uh, those things. Uh, Let's just dialogue together a little bit. What are questions that you have 
that come up as we talk about things like this? What's some pushback that you have? Um, things that, either examples where you've seen some of these things, either in your own life or in the lives of others? What kind of is bouncing around uh, in your mind as we talk about this identity issue and where there might be some conflicts around these things? Well, we haven't done it in a while, so you guys aren't used to this. Yeah, Danny. Yeah, let's get you a mic so that other people can hear what you're, what you're saying. <clears throat> and also I can get my exercise. <laughs> um, hello? Yes. I don't know if it's because I grew up in the States or not that makes it more applicable to me, although I was taught you know, God first. Um, but then even kind of coming to the understanding of it wasn't necessarily about following a political ideal or a nationalism. So, you know, I wouldn't call myself um, Republican or Democrat and mm. trying to walk that center. But it was in reading Shane Claiborne's book, The Irresistible Revolution, that he brought it down to the next level in terms of, you know, not also not identifying either as conservative or liberal things like that, and said allowing God to um, define who I am and what I'm doing. And so mm-hmm. that passage where Jesus is talking there about, you know, give to Caesar what Caesar's, and that image of Caesar, give him that, and who cares about the money. Mm-hmm. Instead, um, give to God what is God's, and looking at my own life, and if his image, if I believe that we're made in his image, then Jesus is actually just saying, like, hey, look, are you... Are you willing to give to God what's God's? Are you willing to give me your life? Mm. And like you said, it, it's all-encompassing. So I don't necessarily see all of the political angles in that. In fact, I see Jesus just kind of wiping out all politics mm. altogether and saying, are you willing to live a life where you follow me first? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's just been revolutionary in my own life. And I don't, I don't see nearly as much nationalism within Canada as I did growing up in the U.S. It's just really interesting you know, dichotomy to live in mm. and being here, I'm, I'm thankful for Canada. You guys are awesome and you don't struggle with this nearly as much as we do in the U.S. And so I think there's a lot to learn in that way. Um, but also we just always have to make this understanding of like, yeah, we need to push ourselves beyond what we're comfortable with and to what God may be calling us to do, which sometimes may mean that we say things here that tick off other Christians because we're not willing to fall into the conservative or the liberal party and you know sometimes you just want to abstain from voting which in this last election I really didn't know what to do right because I still vote in the US and I'm like I don't like either one of these options and I've never been in that spot before so I feel like that was just an example of where God was leading me to come to a point where I'm like I don't even really care who's leading the country and who thinks they have power because the real power lies with God, and I want to follow him. Good observations. Thanks, Danny. Perfect. Nigel. Yeah. I guess I, I think I would like to add, I'd like to, as far as what extent uh, do we involve ourselves politically when it comes to um, adhering to what God has called us to? And I'm thinking in terms of things that are 
uh, injustices in our society, and some some of those injustices, like perhaps abortion being one of them, or things where uh, it seems like political involvement may be one of the strongest ways of fighting that injustice. Mm. So. Mm. Yeah, one of the one of the um, responses to that will depend on your theology of the world in some ways and how you think about whether the world is totally evil and to be avoided and abstained in any way. And people that have, and Mennonite Brethren have historically held that as a very uh, sort of core position that's come out of their historical experiences being an oppressed people in Russia and other places in the world. And so they've seen political power be wielded in very negative ways and they've been on the brunt of that. So they've, Mennonite Brethren have developed actually a theology of more separatism of church and state and all of those things based on actually their historic experiences. And then they read the scriptures through that lens. And so even in the 1920s, if you read our uh, history as a denomination, there were several things that were uh, specifically off the table. One was being a police officer because that was considered that you might have to actually bear arms and kill someone, and that would put you in a very challenging position as a Christian. The other was running for political office. It was right underneath that, and any political involvement whatsoever was totally, if you ran for it, it was just considered that you were tainted and somehow you believed in another process as being uh, able to accomplish what only uh, God's kingdom coming and his will being done was. Now, so that's sort of been a historical approach that some groups have taken around uh, and just seeing the whole process as tainted. And then there's a movement towards more issue-focused and the challenge with being issue-focused is then do you have a, um, a group of people that identify fully with all of the issues that you feel are quote-unquote core Christian issues? And I think what Danny was saying beforehand is that's been a problem in the past and, and maybe in a lot of ways still is in North American culture is that um, you know, we, have, we have even names of political parties that have the word Christian in them. So what do you, what do, you do with that? Uh, in a lot of ways. And so to wrestle with that as a person of faith is a, is, a big, uh, is a big part of understanding how you think about and practice your theology. Do you wed it to a political, a particular party and say, all right, well, this party seems to have the most or more Christian influences than others, so therefore I'm going to hitch my wagon to them? And for, for me, I would personally be quite cautious about that because you're sort of your, um, there's things that are, are, the political process itself is going to generate some things that may not be actually Christian. I remember talking to a person, and uh, they, they're not local here, but another uh, member of parliament, and we were talking, and I said, well, do you pray with other people on, on the Hill around issues and other things? And they said, yeah, and there's even people from the NDP there. Um, <laughs> and I said, to, I said to this member of parliament, well, one would expect that not all Christians would align themselves with one particular party. Would one not expect that? And it just for this person, they were quite shocked that, you know, there would be, they had a very sort of narrow and defined vision of that. And so therefore, to them, Christian involvement in politics meant always voting for their particular party. But I, if I hear you saying accurately is this dance of or this wrestling with how do we participate in a process um, and maybe not give ourselves to it fully, but still express our voice and not just sort of 
like as historically men and I brethren have done and being like, oh, nothing there for me at all. It's no good uh, in any way, shape, or form. Um, one of the ways to think about voting then, back to Danny's question, is uh, I don't see voting as, for me personally, an expression of discipleship. I see it as damage control. Um, <laughs> who's going to do the, the least amount of harm, do, least, do less harm, you know, and kind of then aligning and figuring out, I'm, I'm not saying by my vote personally that I sort of have this alignment in every way with, you know, there might be all kinds of things, reasons why I would be particularly voting around this person, these issues. There might be a number of things that would be coming up in that. So anyways, that was a long answer to your question. <laughs> Jared. This topic pretty much baffles me, but I, I just wanted to make two comments, and there's a question attached to it. The first comment would be, I mean, Jesus through the Gospels is, is pretty political. I mean, he's, he's coming up against the powers that be and saying, this is, this is what I stand for, and it's going to have bearing on your political process. It's going to have bearing on, on you know, there's going to be ethnic clashes as a result of this. There's going to be government upheaval as a result of this. And I, I don't see him shying away from it. Mm. And yet at the same... So, so I would say, yeah, by all means, we as Christians ought to be involved in the public spaces of the world, in, in, in business and government, etc., um, letting our voices be heard and, and, and engaging. However... In present day, I have a hard time. I have a hard time separating government from actual people, and I don't know that I'm able to do that. And I probably shouldn't. I think of government as this this ambiguous entity that can that can set policy and can enforce laws and can incarcerate people and all the rest of this. And yet, I always forget that government is a bunch of people, mm. and so I find that. So I guess the question there is is if, if we believe as Christians that government has some level of authority as, as given to them by God um, to, to carry out certain policies or whatever, um, where, 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 at what point does that trickle down into, into what my individual responsibility is? Mm. Because particularly about more difficult, you know, ethical or social issues or... or um, uh, issues of, of, of prison versus restorative justice versus death penalty or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Um, does the person who flips the switch down in Texas when somebody commits a crime that's punishable by death, you know, are, are they on the line morally or are they part of this upper government sphere mm. that somehow has a different, uh, account, a different accountability or right. whatever? Yeah. So anyways, the separation yeah, yeah. between individuals and, and government as a larger uh, right. body... right. Uh, uh, I have no idea how to Yeah, I know. That. It's a good question, and it's a big one. I'll respond to it just real quick with a story. Um, my grandfather lived on Salt Spring uh, Island for years, and as Salt Spring began to change and kids that grew there grew up, there began to be a, a much more significant amount of crime on Salt Spring than this sort of peaceable little island that he knew when 35, 40 years ago. So instead of sort of thinking to himself... Well, I wonder, I hope that the police and the court systems look after that. He took it on himself to say, well, where is this coming from? And he noticed that it was mostly oriented around youth. And so he thought, well, sure, we could just let the other, the justice system look after this. Or we could do a few things. One is 
Salt Spring's not a very exciting place for youth to live. I wonder if we could give them something else. So he worked in his 80s to build a skate park for young people in Salt Spring so that they could actually have something constructive to do. And then he also, in his 80s, worked with the justice system to say, it seems like a lot of the offenders are young offenders. I wonder if we couldn't model a restorative justice system here whereby they stay on Salt Spring and we'd set mediators in place so that the kid that kicked down the gravestone doesn't get booted off to Victoria and get a criminal record for this. Could we just sit them down with the family of that that gravestone and say, do you know what, when you did that, that was really hurtful for this family. And I think you need to actually get in there and get your hands dirty in that particular cemetery and clean that up and do it. And so instead of sort of farming it off and saying, you know, I hope someone looks after those big problems in the world, and this kind of links in with what Nigel is saying, I think part of our responsibility as disciples is to say, we will be willing to get our hands dirty in some of these issues of justice and working for what it is that the values of the kingdom would call us to in this place. So there's just so much more we could say about this. And so what I would encourage us is to keep talking with each other uh, in all of the different forums, whether it's online, um, on Twitter, on our Facebook page, uh, stick around and have conversations uh, with each other today. As we close, I want to invite you to stand And I want to invite you to uh, make a different sort of pledge, as it were. It's not a pledge of allegiance. It's a a declarative statement of how a person that is living as a disciple might think and walk and act in the little and in the big things of life. So it's actually phrased as a responsive reading. So I'll read the parts that are in bold, and then you can respond uh, to... Sorry? Okay, parts in bold are your part, parts that are not in bold are my part, all right? So the first line is, God, in his mercy, established government to promote the well-being of all people. And altogether we say, we commit ourselves to pray for our leaders and to work for justice, truth, and righteousness in our homes, in our communities, and in all the nations of the world. We ask for the Spirit's guidance to make us keenly aware of those who suffer discrimination and injustice. In serving them, we are serving Christ. God requires governments to uphold and bless what is good and punish and restrain what is evil. So we commit ourselves to obey all laws that do not conflict with the word of God. The citizenship of believers is in heaven, and God's kingdom demands from us absolute obedience and allegiance. So we seek the well-being of our governments, but we reject overbearing nationalism as an idolatrous claim for our loyalties and an affront to the God of all nations. We commit ourselves to always live lives worthy of our heavenly citizenship, for it has been purchased for us with the priceless blood of Jesus. We've gone a little bit over time today, and I apologize uh, for that. And I invite you to continue discussing and engaging uh, with each other. There's lots to think about around this topic and act on. But go in God's grace, in his peace, and with a desire to live out the ethic of the kingdom in your day-to-day lives and interactions in our world.